We're still in 2 Corinthians 11. we kind of the heart of the book in a way where Paul talks about a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. So very pertinent to a lot of things going on in the church today. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for another Sunday to gather with Your flock, to pray for one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, and comfort one another by opening the Word and applying it to our lives. Lord, we believe that Your Word is the truth. We believe that the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. And we believe that as we sit under the authority of the Word in obedience, that You are at work sanctifying us. And so, Lord, that's what we pray would happen this morning. Pray for the flock scattered around the world that You would encourage and comfort them as well and help them to find others to gather together with. And we commit this Sunday morning to You in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians 11, we were on verse 4, and then we did a little excursus into the situation in Jerusalem when Paul actually arrived there with the gift, and we uh, made a hypothesis that what happened was the gift was basically didn't do what he hoped it would do, and that the Jewish believers were basically on their way back to law-keeping, and only James and the elders accepted Paul. And I think that that probably explains the content of the book of Hebrews. If there were thousands of believers in Jerusalem zealous for the law, they were uh, in danger of apostasy, and so therefore you have the book of Hebrews to correct that. I had a couple more quotes on verse 4 and some cross-references, and then we'll go to verse 5. I'm going to quote Garland, who about this verse that says this, If one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear with this beautifully. Remember the irony, the, Paul has to beg them to bear with him, but they're more than willing to bear with a different Jesus, different gospel, and a different spirit, so, which is really bad. Garland says this about the diff, idea of a different spirit. The problem seems to be that the rivals' misinterpretation of the Spirit. They promulgate a Spirit who has nothing to do with the Spirit. Perhaps they view the Spirit primarily as an inrush of heavenly power into their lives and emphasize a Spirit who produces miracles, displays of power, ecstasy, and visions. The Spirit that one receives from these rivals allows claims of superiority over others in the church and creates divisions. They fail to recognize that God gives the Spirit to the church to build up a harmonious community, not to exalt one over another. Very good point. Very important point. And it's absolutely true. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. And the, the primary sign in the New Testament of a work of the Holy Spirit is that when He comes upon people, they confess Christ. Okay? And I demonstrated that once. I did a, a whole sermon on that. Now, if the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word, and when He is working in our hearts and minds, we begin to be gospel-centric, we begin to be Christ-centered, and we preach Christ, well then, it would follow that if that would happen corporately in a church, that it would create unity. Right, Because the unity is the unity of the Spirit. And if we're unified around the Gospel, we've got significant unity and we're all going in the same direction. But when the Holy Spirit is portrayed as coming upon people in order to give them, you know, whatever, new revelations or ecstatic visions or make somebody the great man of God with, with anointing and so on and so forth, it does not create unity creates divisions, and it creates the idea that some people are better than others. Furthermore, Garland says, what are the criteria for identifying that someone is preaching a false Jesus, spirit, and gospel as opposed to the genuine Jesus, spirit, and gospel? For the Corinthians, the other Jesus is one Paul did not preach. The Jesus Paul preached is Jesus Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1.23. And Jesus Christ is Lord, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Jesus says, no, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Jesus is Lord, requires humble submission and makes absolute moral demands. 
Any gospel that has no moral core fosters boasting and soft pedal sacrifice is no gospel. I was just thinking about that in reference to Rick Warren's prayer at the inauguration. It wasn't that it was so bad, or his invocation, but what he ended his prayer with is that Jesus, you know, Yeshua, who changed my life, in the name of Jesus, Yeshua, who changed my life. And here we have, if you would have said, in the name of Jesus, Lord of this universe, or Lord of this world, or the name of Jesus, who was crucified and raised from the dead, yeah. it would have been much different than just an individual thing, which is what he was preaching as an individual, as opposed to his authority or what he did. Right, because people will accept Jesus as a good teacher or a moral person. or Yeah, so the thing that offends people is the cross. So as long as you don't mention the cross and the resurrection, then Jesus is fine. Because he's the founder of a world religion that teaches people to go out and do good works. That's a fine Jesus. But you preach the cross, and then you got problems. Or you got salvation, which is even better. But, but, but it creates, the cross divides us from the world. And that's why Paul, in um, a figure of speech called metonymy, where a part designates the whole, he can just use the term cross alone to designate the whole work of Christ through the gospel. And he does so in 1 Corinthians, as a matter of fact. So the message of the cross would include the person and work of Christ, the, the blood atonement, the resurrection, and the need to turn to him. That's the whole package. The term cross is like um, signifies the whole thing. So the cross is important. Okay, let's do some cross-references. Gretchen, could you look up Acts 4 and verse 12? Pauline, Galatians 1, 7 and 8. Dale, Galatians 3, 2. And Donna, 1 Timothy 2, 5. Acts 4 and verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Yeah, now there's an interesting... Use of a metonymy uh, uh, as well. It just it's just truncated down to the word. There's no other name. Okay, how how is the name? What's the name got to do with salvation? Well, name there signifies the whole person of Christ, His person, His work, and everything He did for us. So remember, in Acts, I think about in that same chapter, they they told them that they could not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Okay, so that's, that didn't work. They went and did it anyhow. Okay, go ahead, Pauline. Galatians 1, I'm going to do 6 through 8, make it a full sentence. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. All right, so the key is the gospel on fifth. Do you think uh, an angel from heaven would probably be a nice guy? <laughs> yeah, I think an angel from heaven would be a real nice guy. And that, that's the most pathetic type of discernment that there is in the world. But that's what people go by. It's amazing how many people go by that. And how can I say it? I'll write an article full of theological discussion in Scripture concerning somebody's false teaching out there. And then the emails, I get back and say, what's wrong with you? He's a nice guy. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, great. I'm glad he's a nice guy. But a, but a false teaching from a nice guy will do just as much harm as a false teaching from a nasty guy. It's worth Yeah. you got to take a look at my time if you haven't seen it. Sheeps and wolves. Look at that. <laughs> There's a little wolf scattered in there with sheep's clothing on. <laughs> so anyhow, if an angel from heaven teaching a false gospel would be bad, why should we think that some guy who's nice, that's all we need to know? I'd rather have a nasty guy tell me the truth that would save me. <laughs> okay, Dale. Galatians 3.2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law 
or by hearing with faith. Yeah, so the Galatians were hearing uh, people's claim that you have to keep the Old Testament law to be a Christian. I'm going to talk about that in our sermon. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. One mediator, that's all. Nobody else. One gospel, and that's the true, only one. There's lots of gospels out there, but all but the one are false. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians 11, 5. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. The way the New American Standard is written here is, I think, is misleading. Or uh, I'll tell you why. Paul is using irony here, okay? And so the way it's written in translated New American Standard, it sounds like Paul saying, I'm, I'm not inferior to Peter and John and, and whoever, okay? But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the false apostles using irony. And in the Greek, the, the word would be huperleon, apostles, and that word means very beyond, hyper. It's like hyper beyond, piling up uh, the same idea twice to intensify it. So what they are are false apostles who claim to be beyond uh, Paul and anybody else. Yeah, the, these apostles are the super apostles in their own minds that are greater even than the actual apostles. So there's irony there. So I would disagree with the New American Standards translation, but Garland, Garland has a bunch of stuff to refute that idea that is talking about Peter in, because... What's his topic right now? Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Okay, and then when you get down here into verse 13, he says this on the same topic. For such men are false apostles, despite disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So obviously he's talking about his opponents, the false ones. So the super apostles are false ones, and he's using irony here, very strong irony. So consider uh, means to reckon, to, to look at it uh, reasonably and logically. And he's not inferior to these guys like they're trying to claim. And see, I had a quote here. Dr. Barnett, it is probably factual in part at least because of their claim to be apostles, ministers, workmen, 1115, who were superior to Paul in important areas of ministry. It's also ironic because he designates them very superior, hyper-superior, through the full speech where he catalogs his sufferings and privations in ministry, exposes and parodies their boastfulness. They attempt to legitimate their ministry at the expense of his by marks of superiority. For his part, Paul seeks recognition of his ministry as authentically of Christ by demonstrating that the sufferings of Christ uh, flow over into his life. So Paul's message of the cross, a suffering Christ, his own suffering, his own hardships, maybe don't compare so greatly to these guys who are trying to lure the entire Corinthian church away from Paul's ministry um, because they had superiority of speech. They had um, more money because they actually got paid for their services, and they were mocking Paul because uh, he was a tent maker, and he didn't take pay. And so they used that to prove that he wasn't worth anything. Sometimes it's real tough being in the ministry. <laughs> Whatever you do is seen to be wrong, yes. In a certain way, if you look at the, some of the television preacher, television ministries that are going along that way too, you would see an irony with, say, Joel Osteen or you know, the sufferings of Joel Osteen or the sufferings of Robert Schuller or that, that type of thing because you don't see this same concept at all working in those men. Well, no, because, and, and that's why the message of the cross is absent. You know, Schuller really made a name for himself by denigrating the message of the cross when he called for a new reformation in 1982 and based on self-esteem, and he said that the, one of the most damaging things that's done in the name of Christianity is making people aware of their sinful condition. All right, Schuler said, and um, 
He said Jesus never called anybody a sinner. I remember reading that, and I thought about it for a while. Well, let's we'll see. Did he ever call anybody a sinner? What about whitewashed sepulcher, snakes, serpents? <laughs> he called them a lot of things. <laughs> he said, go and sin no more. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. It's interesting how people can get by with this, altering the message. So, the eminent apostles are better than Paul. Um, this statement is repeated later in Second Corinthians. Oh, I was going to quote Lenski here. <laughs> All right, I, I, I have to wean myself. No more commentaries on Second Corinthians. <laughs> I'm up to five, and I have to, if I get any more, I'll never get anything else done the rest of the week. But they're, they're good. Throughout this discussion, says Lenski, there is nowhere a reason for comparison between Paul and any of the twelve, least of all here in 12 and in 1211. The whole clash is limited to Paul and the false apostles at Corinth. In no case would Paul fling an epithet like Huperleon, super above, at, at, at the twelve, his honored fellow apostles, and then say no more about himself in relationship to them. Softening the word when translating it does not change matters. It means the excessive apostle. That's how he translated it, the excessive apostle. Excessive as one who is trying to outdo all the real apostles. We have them right here in these chapters. So he's agreeing with the other scholars that this is ironic. And if you look at verse 13, we go down to verse 13 in chapter 11, we have a word called false apostles, pseudo-apostles. So, Obviously, they're just disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Dear ones, if you think there was a problem in the first century, it's nothing compared to what we have today. Back then, they had a handful of apostles, probably from Jerusalem, probably claiming to be superior because they had more signs and wonders and more visions and more honor and more money and more eloquence and more sophistry. But today, in the church, there are thousands of apostles. Thousands upon thousands of apostles. People claiming they're apostles. And so it's, it's even worse today. An amazing thing is you've got to wonder whether any of these people actually read Second Corinthians ever. Because the people today who are claiming to be apostles are boasting about their signs and wonders. Which is precisely what the false apostles in Corinth were doing. They're boasting about their money. They're boasting about the number of followers they have. They boast about their power. They boast about their visions. I mean, just unbelievable. You just go do the same thing that Paul was fighting in, in, in Corinth, in Second Corinthians, and they don't see it. They can't see it. I've talked to some of them. They can't see it. They're blinded. They're, they're just uh, believing that they're the apostles. And how that all happened, I don't know, because when I was in Bible college, they, they absolutely said, there are no more apostles and prophets. There are no more. They said to me, there's no new revelations, there's no, no apostles, no prophets, because they were still reeling from the latter rain movement. And the president of the Bible college got up and said, we are a non-profit organization. And he spelled it like prophet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one who prophesies. <laughs> so don't come around here if that's what you think you are. We don't want you. Now all of that... Uh, uh, caution and wisdom has kind of gone out the window. Let's go to verse 6. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things. Now, unskilled here is an interesting word, idiotes, and probably where we got our word idiot, but the, the, uh, etymology doesn't determine meaning or what something means to us. Idiotes or idiotes, would come from a word about self, all right? And so the idea was unskilled, meaning if you had no formal training, it was the same thing was said about the apostles, remember in Acts, that they hadn't been trained. So if in their parlance, if you had no formal training, all you had is yourself. Some made you an idiot. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I meant was you just hadn't broke, you just had too small of a world. You were just kind of hemmed into yourself. And so 
it really meant having no formal training. So what Paul would be saying then is that he was never trained in the Greek schools of rhetoric. He wasn't a trained rhetorician. And that was an interesting world that they had, and I think I have a few quotes about that. So there's probably, the question here is, is he being ironic or is it a concession? Some of the scholars think that he said that he's admitting he's not professional speaker of the grade that these guys claim to be. And I think that's probably true. I'm taking it as a concession. But he doesn't think that that's important. Remember, in 1 Corinthians, there's a famous section that's quoted at weddings. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, okay, but I have not love. So I think that if you, if you, and if you look in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, you see behind the scenes, Paul came in fear and trembling, and he, he didn't come with wisdom. He came with the message of the cross. So I think all the way through these two correspondences, we have Paul defending himself about his speech. And his critics are saying he's not very eloquent. And Paul says, I don't care. I don't care about their words. I care about their power. And what he meant by power was the power of the cross to save people. That's what he's talking about. All right, so if I'm an idiotes in speech, logos, or word, you could say in word, Yet I'm not so in knowledge. Now, what kind of knowledge is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about the knowledge of God that's gained through the gospel. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Now, remember previous arguments. Paul said, you are my letter of commendation. So what Paul's saying is, I came to Corinth. I preached the gospel to you. You, you were saved. That's why you exist. And now you're saying, I don't have a good enough gospel? You don't like the way I do it? Uh, and you're going to listen to these other guys that come in claiming to be better, with a better gospel, a better message, better power, better speech, better everything. What a slap in the face to the apostle. Lenski says this, What if I actually am what they say on the score of the logos? What does that amount to when I am decidedly not on that score of the gnosis or knowledge? We have two dativs of relation. What a silly thing to quibble about a man's speech while disregarding what the speech contains in way of knowledge. In way of knowledge. Then he goes on to say, only in one sense was Paul an idiotes to logo, unskilled in the word. He was not a graduate of a pagan university. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. He was not a graduate of a pagan university. The art which he employs was not the artificial technique of the Greek orators or rhetoricians. Their canon of art and their practice ill accorded with what Paul had to convey as an apostle. It contained too much artificiality. Paul's art was the native expression of the genuine gnosis or knowledge, and that would be the knowledge of God gained through the gospel. So he could speak well enough to give them the gospel. I think I have some... Stuff about what those rhetoricians were like. I thought I was, found some interesting stuff here. Um, Garland says, It is more likely that this relates to Paul's style and strategy of public speaking. He lacks the polish of a skilled rhetorician who waxes eloquently with um, compelling arguments. He is a layman when it comes to rhetorical flourishes and comes off as amateurish to the Corinthians, whom Paul notes are rich in the word, rich in word, 8-7. By contrast, Paul mentions coming to them in fear and trembling, 1 Corinthians 2.1, a phrase that in the Old Testament, fear and trembling, the same phrase in the Septuagint, by the way, I looked that up, depicts a humble response to the awe-inspiring majesty of God. That, that fear and trembling comes from Exodus when God comes on the scene. That's the response of people is fear and trembling. So Paul has, Paul's fear and trembling may be in the sense of his awe at the majesty of God and the glory of the gospel and the, and the privilege of preaching this gospel that God uses to save the lost. As one entrusted with the word of the cross, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, Paul would have been confronted daily by the awe-inspiring majesty of God. Consequently, he did not come in haughtiness of speech, but in profound humility 
and trepidation. Now, I'm going to read something from the ancient world. This is from a guy named Lucian who was making fun of the rhetoricians. Okay? A guy named Lucian wrote this. Quote, this is Lucian, Greek or Roman writer. The traits that you should possess in particular are these. You should be imprudent and bold and should abuse all and each, both kings and commoners. For thus they will admire you and think you manly. <laughs> Let your language be barbarous, like the barking of a dog. In a word, let everything about you be bestial and savage. Put off modesty, decency, and moderation. Wipe blushes from your faith completely, says Lucian. But all, at all events, it is easy, man, and no trouble for all to follow, for you will not need education and doctrine and drivel, but this road is a shortcut to fame. Even if you are an unlettered man, there will be nothing to hinder you from being wondered at if only you have impudence and boldness and learn how to abuse people properly. <laughs> That's Lucian talking about the rhetoricians of his day. So I don't know how much truth to that. That's how they were, but just abuse them. When you see what happens to people, you wonder whether people do like to sign up to be abused sometimes. Let's see here. I had one. Where's the mic by now? Okay, why don't you read 2 Corinthians 4, 2 then, Robert? The evident there is phanerao, to, to make manifest. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Yeah. And I think that's not a very clear contrast between Paul and the false apostles. He renounced those things, and all he did was speak the truth and live it out and was transparent about it. This is the truth of the gospel. This is where we're standing. Here's what we preach. It's not adulterated. It's not dressed up. It's not made to look like something that it isn't, like human turning, trying to turn the Bible into human wisdom when, when it isn't. The Bible is not human wisdom. Patrick. So does that mean, as Christians, we should avoid becoming good speakers or avoid training in these practical techniques of, of teaching? No, I, w I would not say that. That's a good point, Patrick. I don't make it my aim to try to be the worst speaker I can be. <laughs> I, I may just fall into it naturally. But no, my aim is to just remove all impediments to the gospel, okay? And so a well-given sermon that is follow, that's clearly articulated and, and can be followed and applied is a powerful thing. And, but we have whatever skills we have, we have. We can develop them the best we can. But my point is not that, is, is that bad rhetoric is to be commended, but that the gospel itself isn't dependent on the vessel that brings it. That the gospel was the power of God in and of itself. But I think that, I don't know about, you know, they have homiletics in, in Bible college and in seminary. It's hard to, I never got anything out of that that I remember. The best way to learn how to, preach good sermons is to sit under somebody that does. And I don't know, I don't know what to say, but just, it took me years and years and years so I could get to the point where somebody could follow what I was saying, clearly. And I've had some help lately with some critics that have been good critics to say, okay, try this, try this, try this. I like how, how we're doing it now. The PowerPoint helps. I, I really believe that that helps. And because it keeps things going where you're supposed to be going. And it takes you out. There's, there's no way to go on a bunny trail because my PowerPoint won't let me. So I think, yeah, we should do the best we can. And here's another way of looking at it. I saw an interesting article on Christian Worldview Network, and it said, what if your pastor is not John Piper? And what it was, and I, assuming they, they said Piper because they consider him a good speaker. I mean, he has a lot of passion and he really gets into it. And they, the, the article made a good point. Everybody's out there. We don't have to try to copy somebody. The, the truth of the gospel is the truth of the gospel. And possibly 
the, the skill that somebody has at presenting it might determine the size of the audience, but it won't determine the power of the gospel. And if somebody's not quite so articulate and they're in a small church somewhere, the gospel is still the gospel, even if you have a smaller audience. Maybe that's how it works. Okay. I'm not sure about the context of this one, but it sounds like a pretty good verse that would fit that situation that Paul was in, because in Galatians 4.16, okay. he says, I have, now, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Yes, and that's very similar to what's going on here. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul will say, the more I love you, am I to be loved the less? I mean, they really turn against him. And that sort of thing is one of the biggest disappointments in ministry is betrayal when someone turns against you for no good reason. Keith. I think another thing on that topic of rhetoric, while John in his gospel and John in First John's Greek is very elementary and very almost childish, the gospel message is very clear, uh-huh. but it's more fun to read Hebrews, yeah. <laughs> where the Greek is very eloquent and the Greek is very complicated because it's expressing also the gospel in an ideas in a way that's very beautiful. And neither one has more power of God. It's just the style is nice. And I think that Apollos had a reputation for good speaking, and Paul never condemned Apollos because he spoke so eloquently. But he was more concerned about the content than the form. That's a good point. And that's a good answer to Patrick's question. Because you have in the New Testament the the flourishing, beautiful use of the Greek language in Hebrews and the the very simplistic use of it in John, in 1 John. And and it's still God used both. And it's both inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, 1 John is so easy that... (laughs) I hadn't taken Greek since 1973 and 74. And, and then when I went back to the seminary about 20 years later, I, I didn't want to take basic Greek again. So I decided to see if I could pass the test <laughs> to get into advanced. So I went into the test, did brush up a little bit, and went into the test. Now, there's 20 years, you know. <laughs> and I wasn't using it as much then as I did now because I didn't have my Logos software. And so I went and took the test, and the test was translating 1 John. Well, I basically had 1 John memorized, and it's so easy. So I was sitting there translating 1 John, and I, and I, I got the test back, and I got 61%. Flunking was 60. <laughs> so, I, so I thought, that's pretty good. I got 61, and I didn't even know what I was doing. So I went into Dr. Schreiner, Tom Schreiner, and who's in charge of the department at the time. I says, well, what do you think I should do? Should I take, take the, my New Testament studies in Greek? And he looked at my test. He says, well, technically you passed, but if you do, you're going to have a very long year. <laughs> you're going to suffer. So I chickened out and took it in English. <laughs> they should have had us translating Hebrews. Then they would have had about a 30 Okay, now, what did I say here? Good quote. All right, here's, here's how they understood rhetoric in then and now. I thought this was very interesting from Garland. Lift, lift, he quotes a guy named lift, Lipton, outlines the five steps of persuasion as one, attention, two, comprehension, three, yielding, four, retention, and five, action. Attention, comprehension, yielding, retention, attention, comprehension, yielding, retention, action. Greco-Roman rhetoric, stress step three, yielding, getting the audience to yield. Paul's stress step two, comprehension, which explains why he emphasizes that he's not lacking in knowledge. He may grant that he's untrained in rhetorical arts, but he vigorously denies he lacks knowledge. The adversity of but is repeated twice, but I do have knowledge, but we have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Paul left the third step, yielding to the Spirit. That's interesting. Yeah. The third step is left to the Holy Spirit. So we, t- we preach the gospel. The yielding happens when the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You can see this. Isn't that what exactly happened in Acts 2? Peter preached the gospel to the whole big crowd at Pentecost, but it says some of them were pierced to the heart. 
And then the interesting thing is, I love it. I love Acts 2. After they are pierced to the heart, now remember the last step was action? Peter didn't. They asked Peter, okay, what should we do? So he didn't have to drag them and, and beat them and make them try to act Christian because they were already yielded to the work of the Spirit. And so therefore, Peter just said, repent and be baptized. He, he told them um, the gospel, what, what was part and parcel of the whole thing. Third, it says in rhetorical discourse, the speaker is on trial and the audience serves as judge and jury. That's interesting. The speaker is on trial. The audience is the judge. In the realm of rhetorical discourse, the audience is always sovereign, and ancient audiences relish this role. To be effective, the speaker must sway the audience. For Paul, the sovereignty does not reside in the audience, but in the message. To some, the message of Christ crucified is foolishness. To others, it is scandalous. 1 Corinthians 1, 17-25. But this negative response does not alter the truth that the message being heralded is the power and wisdom of God unto salvation. The audience, therefore, is not the final arbiter of what is true. They're yielding to the clever word-spinning and crafty modulations of the rhetoric, each calculated for its effect, does not make what is proclaimed true. All right? So, the truth is the truth. Yes. I was really convicted uh, last week when I was watching some nonsense on TV in the lunchroom, and I was so offended by what I heard, I plugged up my ears, and I was protesting about it. But how that ties in with, you were talking earlier about absolute moral commands, and I think the Holy Spirit does convict one of what's right uh-huh. for one's own uh, life, you know. Uh-huh. I, that's all the more specific I can ask about it. I don't know what my question is, but I was so certain that I didn't care what anyone else in the lunchroom said. I said, that's terrible. I won't listen to it. Yeah, you know, uh, Gretchen, there is a... Where, where is it in Galatians? Paul said, I'm crucified to the world and the world to me. Mm-hmm. Remember, that, remember that passage? When we're converted by a work of God's grace through the Holy Spirit, we're totally in a different world. We really are. We, it's hard to have, there's so little we have, we have in common. There's, there's certain common human traits that we have with everybody. But our belief and our thinking, well, you just, just read the paper. And you think, what are people thinking about? People, the, the blind credulity that has come upon our nation is shocking. Let me, let me tell you one that I saw. This, this is just like so bizarre and so ridiculous. I'm reading through the Star and Trib, and here's a little blurb. The, the IPCC, the whatever interplanetary climate change things, has declared that if we don't even drive a single car or heat another house, all these things are going to happen 100 years from now. And they told us exactly what's going to happen and where 100 years from now. And in the same paper, Paul Douglas has his little little thing. I I like to read that. And he's explaining, it wasn't just a few weeks ago, he's explaining why, because of the complexities of weather systems and the number of input factors that control weather and influence weather, even the best, most sophisticated computer model for local weather are not accurate more than like two to three days out, five days, they're way off. Okay? So, now think of how stupid people are. Unbelievable. That we, we, we know for a fact that local weather is too complex. We can't know it five days from now, but we're going to tell you exactly what's going to happen 100 years from now in the whole world. And they make these grand pronouncements. And you'd think the whole people would say, you guys are nuts. Your, your, your lunch ticket is canceled. Don't say any more. Go home. Find another job. You're too dumb to be called a scientist. But the blind credulity, the blind credulity that somebody knows exactly what's going to happen 100 years in the future with climate is unbelievable. There, I had to get that off my chest. I was so mad <laughs> when I read that in a paper. Yes. I'll bring us back to here now. Okay. Okay, bring us back to the Bible. 
Well, the, the concept that you're talking about, the rhetoricians, about the audience being the judge, yeah. is the same as what we're seeing in our day right now with the churches who go seeker-sensitive, and they want the audience to be the judge because the whole concept of demographics and having you determine what's preached is the same concept of what they're doing back then with the rhetoricians because whatever's of interest is going to pay the most money, i.e., I'll give you what you're looking for. Give you the biggest crowd. And instead of having the gospel come, they hire teachers that tickle their ears. And in essence, the followers of the super hyper apostles here were looking to them because they tickled their ears and gave them what they wanted to hear. And Paul would only give them the gospel because that's yeah. what they needed. That's a very good point. And that's the poison pill of the whole movement. In other words, to take business marketing acumen and proven techniques and use that to enhance the church. What Keith said is exactly what's wrong with it. You can do that. You can go around the neighborhood and literally it goes like this. You go door to door to door to door and you ask people, if you were going to attend church, what would you like to happen? Or if you're not going to church, why don't you go? And, and you get answers like, well, it's just it's, it's too boring, or they get, they get too many commands and rules, or we don't like this, we don't like that. Or if we did go, here's what we would want. And you kind of do a big focus group type thing, and then you get your answer, and then you create what they said they wanted, and then advertise it into that very community that now, now the church is going to give you what you want. So you have the audience becoming the judge. And as I've pointed out many times, the lost are never going to say, what I want to hear in church is the cross of Jesus Christ proclaimed. I want the pastor to get up and tell me to repent and believe the gospel. That will never come back unless you're talking to somebody who's already a Christian. Okay, back to Rich. I was blown away by the similarities between Jesus' day and what's going on right now in our evangelical church. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, well, the reason you're following me around is because your needs are being met. I'm feeding you and you're loving it. I'm healing you and you're loving it. I'm doing all these things and you're loving it. But then he started preaching about himself and about it, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they scattered like they just took off on him. Uh-huh. And that's the same thing. They're, he was filling their felt needs at first, and then he was telling them the truth. And that's what's going on today is that people want their felt needs taken care of. The similarities are amazing. Yeah, absolutely. John 6 is just all you need right there to, to see what the issues are. The cross always does that. It causes people to want to go, Diane, to Diane Bukowski. The ladies' Bible study was in Jeremiah 15 this last week. Okay. Can we take this verse as being a directive is my question. Okay. Therefore, thus says the Lord, he's talking to Jeremiah and he's telling him to repent. If you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. Yeah, in Jeremiah's day, you know, of course, there's massive apostasy. And so there's a call to distinguish between the precious and the vile. And the false prophets, it was the same kind of thing. They were telling, well, if you're going through Jeremiah, I'm sure you saw that. The false prophets said, everything, peace, safety, everything's going to be good. Yeah, I know. I know. There's just a lack of discernment. Just teach the Bible. Let's go to verse 7. You get to see Paul's pleading here. He said, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself, myself so that, I, that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Now we see behind the scenes what's going on. The false super apostles were saying Paul couldn't be that good because he doesn't even get paid for what he does. What a, what a catch-22. If Paul preaches the gospel and ask them to support him, they'll say he's only in it for the money. If Paul does his tent making and doesn't charge them, they say he's not worth being paid, so he probably doesn't have anything worth saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So whatever he does, somebody finds some reason to cause that, that to be a cause for criticism. And so he's being ironic. Did I commit a sin? Did I sin against you when I came 
and I preach the gospel for free? He's pleading with them to, to, to have some common sense here. Now, humbling himself would probably mean that they thought it was demeaning for him to work. And again, I have some interesting citations from the ancient world by writers. And again, this Lucian. Lucian shares the negative estimate of workmen. A laborer is personally inconspicuous, getting meager and illiberal returns, humble-witted, an insignificant figure in public, neither sought by your friends nor feared by your enemies nor envied by your fellow citizens. Nothing but just a laborer, one of the swarming rabble, ever cringing to the man above, a man who has not but his hands, a man who lives by his hands. So in other words, they had a, in the Roman, Greco-Roman system, a common laborer was to be despised. He wasn't part of the aristocracy or the nobility of society. Now, notice how opposite that is of the biblical values. Okay? The Hebrew Old Testament valued work. And you can see throughout that a worker is a noble thing as far as the Bible is concerned, but not so in the world that informed the Corinthians in their social world that they lived in. Uh, somebody else says this, an impoverished leader was a contradiction in terms. If you were impoverished, then you obviously weren't a leader because you were supposed to be able to show your status. And it should be obvious that you had this high status by your wealth. And if you didn't have it, then you weren't a leader in their world. Now, sometimes that has gotten into the church as well, right? Where literally there have been people who've been found living lavish, excessive lifestyles who were in the ministry, and when asked to justify the millions of dollars that they were getting, the response was, well, I have to be a good example for the church. Because, see, they were preaching the health and wealth gospel, so if they were rich, then they were a bad example. So... Then he goes on and says this, This issue was particularly important in an affluent city like Corinth, whose citizens took pride in its wealth and aspired to upward mobility. Quoting another source, Here, more than elsewhere, wealth was a prerequisite for honor and poverty a badge of disgrace. Since wealth was a sign of status, Paul's insistence on remaining poor would have rankled since it also would make them bear the shame of being associated with an impoverished apostle. I think that's real. I think that's a very good analysis. They were ashamed of Paul. Yeah, the super apostles had what he didn't have, and by having an impoverished apostle, they were ashamed of him. It's showing that they had a worldly understanding about what's important and what's not important. So that's, I think that's a very good reading here, frankly. His poverty... poverty it's not simply his private business, it reflects on them. Their attitude, however, reflects both the class tensions of the ancient world and their snobbery. Many modern churches feel no differently in desiring their pastor to be somebody whom they can point to with pride. Look at our successful pastor. And please hide his pickup truck. <laughs> at least wash it. I almost did the other day, but the line at the car. Did you see the lines at the car washes Saturday? It gets up warm, and everybody's going to try to get the salt off there, so I just gave up on it. So he humbles himself that they might be exalted. Let me read. Let me read. Uh, let's all turn together to 1 Corinthians 9, starting with verse 4. And just see Paul's discussion about this matter of charging, not charging, and what have you. 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to begin with verse 4. Notice again, he's on the defensive. You see that all the way through the Corinthian correspondence. Verse 3 says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Four, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles, and as the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard? Who does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock that does not use the milk of the flock? 
I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Uh, by the way, this is a lesser to greater argument. Very Jewish. If God cares about an ox who's turning out the grain, how much more would he care about a man who's serving the Lord in a ministerial capacity? That's his argument. Okay? What's that? No. Or is he speaking together for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things? So as you read this section, you get the idea. I mean, this, imagine how frustrating. Because here, he was not being paid because of something in the Corinthians. You know, that they, they, didn't, they refused to take care of Paul. So he just worked with his own hands and didn't ask him for anything. And then later, that very fact becomes a ground of accusation that he wasn't worth anything because he didn't get any pay. Talk about fickle. It's just like in, in Matthew, remember, where John the Baptist, yeah, he was out in the wilderness eating locusts, and he was, had a, he was crazy, he was, he was a demon. And Jesus was eating and drinking, so he must be a wine-bibber and a glutton. They, no matter what, God's prophet can come to them in, in two different forms, and they reject them both on different grounds, so they don't want to listen to God. That's the problem. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. That's verse 12. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? So also the Lord directed those to proclaim, who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things that it may be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion for woe if, is me if I do not preach the gospel. How central was the gospel to Paul? That's an amazing statement. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And I think every preacher should be able to say the same thing. And I think the woe is literal. If, we, if we've been given the sacred responsibility to preach the gospel and we choose not to, woe, woe. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if I give my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right through the gospel. And though I am free from all men, I made myself a slave to all, that I may win more. So that was Paul's policy, and he would take money from a church after he left. The Philippians sent him a gift when he was in prison. And he thanked God for that. And the Macedonians had sent a gift to Paul, even in, in their poverty. Yes? For all of the people that were embarrassed over his impoverishedness as an apostle to them, and for all of the people that listened to the false prophets, somebody saved his letter that we have it today to read. Somebody, somebody saved what? Somebody no, in saved that the letter. church saved that yeah. letter. Amen. Amen. We have the letter, and it applies today. Isn't it interesting? Humanity really doesn't change. You know, if you re- just read the Old Testament way back when, the same kind of ideas, same kind of foibles, uh, the Proverbs could apply just as well today. Things don't change as much as people might think they do. Okay, we will continue on next week. Uh, we're on the Exodus upstairs. I'll be talking about... Fourth commandment. Okay, God bless you.